0: It will help greatly tonight uh, if you have a copy of the scripture. Does anybody need a copy of the scripture? anybody need a a Bible? anybody got a Bible? Maybe on your mobile app or your mobile device, rather, if nothing else. Okay. I tell you what. I will. uh, I'll let you hang on the these. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As I mentioned last week, we are in a section of scripture that we will be doing a lot of reading tonight for those of you joining us for the first time. Those joining us for the first time, we are uh, looking at 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings. And the reason we're doing it is because if we can understand the different kings, the different high priests, the different prophets, uh, the different military commanders between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, uh, I think it will help us as we read the rest of the Old Testament. It will sort of help us to keep the right people in the right place. Now at this point in the book of 1 Kings, we're still in the United Kingdom. It's not until Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne that we have the divided kingdom. So we're still in the period of the United Kingdom where Israel and Judah, all 12 tribes of Israel, are together at this point. And uh, beginning last week, we were starting to look at Solomon's plans for building the temple. And that's going to continue tonight. Uh, We're going to see tonight how they got down to business building it. And then next week, we will also see about the dedication of the temple. And so three weeks where we're looking uh, at all of the passages related to the temple Uh, being built in Jerusalem. And so tonight find chapter 6 of 1 Kings and uh, it may be helpful if we just spend a few moments reading. And then uh, later on in context of the message, uh, I hope you've oiled the hinges on your Bible because we're going to be turning to a lot of other places as well. But 1 Kings chapter 6, as we continue to look at the subject matter, building the temple. And, and what have we said about the overall series, too? If you look at that handout that I gave you, the very first thing at the top of the page says what? What's the overall theme? Okay. The leadership and uh, spiritual life. Uh, impacts a nation, right? We see that today, don't we? Okay? Well, look at chapter 6. In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeve, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. The temple that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 wide, and 30 high. The portico at the front of the main hall of the temple extended the width of the temple, that is 20 cubics, and projected 10 cubics from the front of the temple. He made narrow windows high up in the temple walls. Against the walls of the main hall and inner sanctuary, he built a structure around the building in which there were side rooms. The lowest floor was five cubits wide, the middle floor six cubits, and the third floor seven. He made offset ledges around the outside of the temple so that nothing would be inserted into the temple walls. In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. The entrance to the lowest floor was on the south side of the temple. A stairway led up to the middle level and from there to the third. So he built the temple and completed it, roofing it with beams and cedar planks. And he built the side rooms all along the temple. The height of each was five cubits, and they were attached to the temple by beams of cedar. The word of the Lord came to Solomon, as for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. So Solomon built the temple and completed it. He lined its interior walls with cedar boards, paneling them from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, and covered the floor of the temple with planks of juniper. He portioned off 20 cubits at the rear of the temple with cedar boards from floor to ceiling to form within the temple an inner sanctuary, the most holy place. The main hall in front of this room was 40 cubits long. The inside of the temple was cedar carved with gourds and open flowers. Everything was cedar, no stone was to be seen. He prepared the inner sanctuary within the temple to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. <clears throat> the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 wide, and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold and he extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which was overlaid with gold. So he overlaid the whole interior with gold. He also overlaid with gold the altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary. For the inner sanctuary, he made a pair of cherubim out of olive wood, each ten cubic high. One wing of the first cherub was five cubits long, the other wing five cubits, 10 cubits from wing tip to wing tip. The second cherub also measured 10 cubits for the two cherubim were identical in size and shape. The height of each cherub was 10 cubits. He placed the cherubim inside the innermost room of the temple with their wings spread out. The wing of one cherub touched one wall while the wing of the other touched the other wall And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. On the walls all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He also covered the floors of both the inner and outer rooms of the temple with gold. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors out of olive wood that were one-fifth of the width of the sanctuary. And on the two olive wood doors, he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, and overlaid the cherubim and palm trees with hammered gold. In the same way, for the entrance to the main hall, he made door frames out of olive wood that were one fourth of the width of the hall. He also made two doors out of juniper wood, each having two leaves that turned in sockets. He carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them. And overlaid them with gold, hammered evenly over the carvings. And he built the inner courtyard of the three of three courses of dressed stone, and one course of trimmed cedar beams. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. In the eleventh year in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had spent seven years building it. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. He built the palace of the forest of Lebanon, a hundred cubits long, 50 wide, and 30 high, with four rows of cedar columns supporting trimmed cedar beams. It was roofed with cedar above the beams that rested on the columns, 45 beams, 15 to a row, its windows were placed high in sets of three facing each other. All the doorways had rectangular frames. They were in the front part in sets of three facing each other. He made a colonnade 50 cubics long, 30 wide. In front of it was a portico, and in front of that were pillars and, a, and an overhanging roof. He built the throne hall, the hall of justice, where he was to judge, and he covered it with cedar from floor and ceiling. And the palace in which he was to live, set far back, was similar in design. Solomon also made a palace like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married. All these structures from the outside to the great courtyard and from foundation to eaves were made of blocks of high-grade stone cut to size and smoothed on their inner and outer faces. The foundations were laid with large stones of good quality, some measuring ten cubits and some eight. Above were high-grade stones cut to size and cedar beams. The great courtyard was surrounded by a wall of three courses of dressed stone and one course of trimmed cedar beams, as was the inner courtyard of the temple of the Lord with its portico. Chapter 7 then switches back to the temple and everything, he starts talking about some of the items in the temple itself. And we'll come to that a little bit later. Now, I asked you last week uh, if you knew what your calling and your purpose was. Because we know that Solomon was king, but he felt like his calling was to build the temple of the Lord. Something that his father David had wanted to do. And and, uh, the Lord had given the plans to David about how it was to be built. But the Lord also said to David, you'll not be the one to build my temple for you are a man of blood. It will be your son who will build my temple. And so the job is Solomon's. And this is the main thing that characterizes his reign. And as I pointed out to you before too, this is during the golden age of Israel, where Israel reached some of her zenith in terms of what was accomplished and her boundaries and so forth. Uh, Just like Solomon, you and I have a calling, you and I have a purpose. And again, his was to build the temple, to make sure it finally was accomplished. First of all, with me tonight, if you'll follow along on your study guide, I want you to simply see the initial phase of the work. The initial phase of the work. In chapter 6, we see Solomon embarking upon his life's greatest work. He begins the temple. Now, in all, it took seven years, or a little more than seven years, and uh, this is the start of it that we read about in chapter 6. We are also given, you'll notice, the historical dates, the markers of the beginning of it. Now, the fourth year of Solomon's reign would have been 966 B.C., And so, if you take the traditional early date for the Exodus, which would be 1446 BC, this would be 480 years after the people had come out of Egypt. And by the way, it would be the halfway mark between the Exodus out of Egypt and when Judah would go into exile in Babylon. The building of the temple would be the halfway mark between those two events. Now I want you to notice that the dimensions of the temple are spelled out. The temple was twice as large as the tabernacle and much more costly and much more ornate. It was about 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, 45 feet high. It had a porch 30 feet wide, 15 feet deep. That stood at the front of the temple, and there was a courtyard for the priests that surrounded the temple. It was separated from the outer court by a wall of stone blocks and wood. The doors faced east. And we're going to read about uh, what a magnificent structure it was in, in chapter 6 and 7. Now, we know that by today's standards, it's really not a huge structure but they put only the best of the best into it. And there's going to be good and bad in that. Now, it seems from the text that though God would emphasize uh, this to them, that a temple could not contain him, yet he seems pleased by the undertaking of this project. Because again, he had shared the plans for this with David. Now, let's also remember that God had raised Solomon up for this task, and God oversaw it and blessed it. And at the same time, because of it being so ornate, the simplicity of the tabernacle was lost. Now, folks, it's interesting that with the temple being dedicated, we'll see that next time, the spiritual life of the nation actually began to decline. Think of that. Now, it didn't diminish because of the temple, but in spite of the temple. They had the best worship center that money could buy, and yet their worship deteriorated. Now, what's that tell us today? Is there a lesson in that for us? What would that lesson be? it's not about the building it's not about the building now does this mean that buildings are unimportant no because without a building a group of people in all likelihood would not meet together and jail together as a family an extended family an assembly of people needs a place to go and, and worship and it needs to be big enough, nice enough to accommodate the ministries of the church. But again, the bricks and the mortar are not the church. And so we've always got to maintain that balance, and it's an interesting balance. You know, Dr. Mark Kortz was for many years, for decades... Probably the leading pastor in the state of North Carolina. When I say leading pastor, I mean he was the statesman that other pastors looked to for direction. He pastored Calvary Baptist Church in Winston, Salem. He's passed away now. And I remember him telling us on one occasion when Calvary was exploding in growth and they were in this major building campaign. Uh, A bunch of people came to him and said, you know what, we need to forget about building buildings, just take all the money that we would put into building buildings, give 100% of of it away to missions. And he says, you know, that sounds good, sounds idealistic on the surface, but he told him. he said... um, if we build a strong base of operations here through the decades, if we keep our focus on what our focus ought to be on and we, and, and we build a strong enough base here, through the decades, we will end up giving far more to, to missions and we will send out far more missionaries than if we just closed everything down here, took all the money we were going to spend and gave to missions. He said, you've got to have the long-term vision, not short-term. And he said, through the years, he was reminded of this conversation he had with, with this group and his church, and how his words had borne out to be true, that through the years, Calvary Church was one of the main mission-sending churches, not only in North Carolina, but across the whole entire nation. So, there's a lesson in that, you know. Uh, A church has to look after its needs, have a place for the people to go, and I believe God's honored in that process. But again, the building itself is not to be the focus. The building, the location, is just a tool for ministry. Folks, don't ever confuse the building with the mission, okay? Now, notice that God did not condemn or criticize the complexity of the building, but he reminded them in the text later what the focus was to be, and we're going to see this. Now, the temple, while twice as large as the tabernacle, was also surrounded on three sides by a three-story building, and this was the place where the priests lived during their course of service. So again, God didn't forbid the grandeur of the place. But he was going to remind them the grandeur of the place would not in and of itself bring the people one inch closer to God. The temple was meant to be a place of the ministry of the word and a place of sacrifice. And it became too sophisticated in many ways. And they ended up losing the focus of what they were supposed to be about. And they started trusting in the temple itself instead of in the God of the temple. I want you to go home tonight and read Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah 26. Both of those chapters record the same thing. Chapter 26 is going to tell more of the response to Jeremiah's sermon. But in Jeremiah chapter 7, what you're going to see is Jeremiah's temple sermon. God told Jeremiah to go and stand at the gate of the temple and proclaim God's word against them. And that word that he was going to proclaim against them is that they were trusting in the temple. They were saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord... We are delivered to do all of these things that we're doing. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord says to you, amend your ways. Do not put your trust in the temple. If you put your trust in the temple, Jeremiah went on to say, go down to Shiloh to see what I did there at Shiloh. Shiloh was an early place of worship, and God brought that to nothing. And so what was God saying to the people through Jeremiah? You're trusting in the temple. You think it's all about the building, the mortar, the location. And you're saying we're delivered to do all these things. He said, you're treating my temple as a den of robbers. A den of robbers is a hideout that robbers flee to. They do a job and then they flee to the den of robbers to count all their loot and to plan their next robbery. He said, that's how you're, you're living in wickedness, then you're coming to my house thinking you're delivered to do everything you're doing in your life, and then planning how you're going to go out from the temple and continue a life of sin. And, and God called instead for Repentance. What what am I saying? They they, They got to a point they were trusting in the bricks and mortar itself instead of living for the glory of the God of the temple. And folks, all of this continues to be a lesson to us today. Build churches, yes. Build them even with excellence. Nothing wrong with that but maintain the simplicity of ministry, maintain the focus. Now, as the temple focused on sacrifice, who do we focus on? We focus on Jesus, Christ crucified. He's the final, complete, perfect sacrifice that rendered all other sacrifices for sin Unnecessary. Folks, we must never lose touch with how we approach God. They approached God through their sacrifices of sheep and bulls and so forth. We approach God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we approach God. Uh, we're not even as a church to simply become a, a social center. It's fine to do social ministries that touch people's lives. That can be the fruit of ministry, but our our focus is to be on the cross and on the empty tomb. Our focus is to be on Christ. And we need to always keep that in mind. If we ever lose sight of Jesus and what He's done for our salvation, And we've lost sight of what we are to be about. You know, I also think of a study we did years and years ago in 1 Timothy. And you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what Paul said to Timothy there. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, And beginning in verse 14, he said, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're to be a place where we preach the truth of God, God's Word. And the centerpiece of God's revelation is Jesus. He's the one that the Scripture is about. So we keep Him the focus. Well, the second thing I want you to see is the focus and priority of the work, beginning in uh, chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, the focus and priority of the work. Now, I want you to notice what is said here uh, in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are, that you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. What was the focus to be? The focus was to be obedience to God. I want you to notice that God did not say that simply because of the temple itself that he would live among his people. He said, walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them and then I will I will dwell among you. So they were to keep their focus and priority on obedience to God. And folks that plays out through all of the Bible. You write down Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight. In Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight, God speaking through Moses before. The children of Israel cross the Jordan, go into the promised land. Moses is speaking to them about the importance of obedience to God. When they get in the land that God has promised to them, they dare not forget Him. When they go in there, they need to obey His commandments so they will enjoy His blessings because if they don't obey Him, He will instead of blessings bring curses to them. Then in Joshua one eight, after Moses was gone, God raised up Joshua. What did the Lord tell Joshua? Joshua, this book of the law is not to depart out of your mouth. You're to meditate in it day and night. And God promised Joshua that if Joshua would, would be attentive to God's Word and obey it, God would bless his leadership. 1 Samuel 15, You remember that situation. Again, talks about the importance of obedience. Saul was to go out and defeat all the Amalekites and destroy everything. But his troops saved the best of the livestock. Samuel shows up on the scene... And Saul says, I've obeyed the Lord my God fully. And Samuel said, then what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And Samuel went on to tell Saul that because he had not obeyed the Lord, the Lord was going to take the kingdom away from Saul and put another in Saul's place. And and Samuel said, the Lord desires obedience more than what? More than and sacrifice. You can keep going through the Scripture like that and see how it is that God demands obedience. We're to focus on what God's told us. We're to obey it. We're to follow Him uh, in a relationship. God was essentially telling Solomon, this temple is great, but this temple in and of itself is not going to guarantee My presence with you, and it's not going to guarantee my blessing upon Israel unless you obey me. Folks, we make the mistake sometimes of thinking that we can do great things for God when God, first and foremost, wants what? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. And when you think about it, that makes sense. Because what are we going to give to God that He he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Are you going to bring something to God that God needs to add to His assets in some way? Of course not. And so what's God asked for? That we give of ourselves to Him. We give him our heart. Again, nice to have a place to go to, but doesn't mean anything in and of itself. Does he have your heart? Do you follow him? Do you obey him? Well, a third thing I want you to say. The costliness and detail of the work. The costliness and detail of the work. We read in chapter 6, 14 through 38. We didn't take time to read chapter 7, 13 to 51. You can do that later. But I want you to notice the attention to detail that we already pick up on in the last half of chapter 6. You have cedar, you have cypress wood and juniper, you have ornate carvings of gourds and open flowers. You have the inner sanctuary. You have the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant would be stored. And it's to be overlaid with pure gold as were also the cherubim. Everything overlaid with pure gold. And what's being shown here is all of the detail that God wanted in this and the costliness to it. And then you go over to the second half of chapter 7, you see the same thing with all of the uh, furnishings of the temple. Same kind of detail and precious materials. Uh, And I'll comment on some of them. Again, I know we didn't read those verses yet. Well, I'll tell you what, let's just turn over and read them now so you'll see what I'm talking about. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 7, King Solomon sent to Tyre and brought Purim, whose mother was a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and whose father was from Tyre, and a skilled craftsman in bronze. Huram was filled with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge to do all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all the work assigned to him. He cast two bronze pillars, each 18 cubics high and 12 cubics in circumference. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on tops of the pillars. Each capital was five cubics high. A network of interwoven chains adorned the capitals on top of the pillars, seven for each capital. He made pomegranates in two rows, encircling each network to decorate the capitals on top of the pillars. He did the same for each capital. The capitals on top of the pillars and the portico were in the shape of lilies, four cubics high. On the capitals of both pillars above the bowl shaped part next to the network, were the 200 pomegranates in rows all around. He erected the pillars at the portico of the temple, the pillar to the south he named Jacob, and the one to the north, Boaz. The capitals on top were in the shape of lilies, and so the work on the pillars was completed. He made the sea, I'll comment on that later, he made the sea of cast metal, circular in shape, measuring 10 cubits from rim to rim and 5 cubits high, it took a line of 30 cubics to measure around it. Below the rim, gourds encircled it, 10 to a cubic. The gourds were cast in two rows in one piece with the sea. The sea stood on 12 bulls, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. The sea rested on top of them, and their hindquarters were toward the center. It was a hand-breadth in thickness, and its rim was like the rim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It it held 2,000 baths. He also made ten movable stands of bronze. Each was four cubics long, four wide, and three high. This is how the stands were made. They had side panels attached to uprights. On the panels between the uprights were lions, bulls, and cherubim. And on the uprights as well, above and below the lions and bulls were wreaths of hammered work. Each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles and each had a basin resting on four supports cast with wreaths on each side. On the inside of the stand there was an opening that had a circular frame one cubit deep. This opening was round and with its base work it measured a cubit and a half. Around its opening, there was engraving. The panels of the stands were square, not round. The four wheels were under the panels, and the axles of the wheels were attached to the stand. The diameter of each wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like chariot wheels. The axles, rims, spokes, and hubs were all of cast metal. Each stand had four handles, one on each corner projecting from the stand. At the top of the stand, there was a circular band, half-cubic deep. The supports and panels were attached to the top of the stand. He engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees on the surfaces of the supports and on the panels in every available space with wreaths all around. This is the way he made the ten stands. They were all cast in the same molds and were identical in size and shape. He then made ten bronze basins, each holding forty baths and measuring four cubits across, one basin to go on each of the ten stands. He placed five of the stands on the south side of the temple and five on the north. He placed the sea on the south side and the southeast corner of the temple. He also made the pots and shovels and sprinkling bowls. So Hiram finished all the work he had undertaken for King Solomon in the temple of the Lord, the two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the two sets of, of network, decorating the two bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the 400 pomegranates for the two sets of network, two rows of pomegranates for each network, decorating the bowl-shaped capitals on top of the pillars, the ten stands with their ten basins, the sea and the twelve bulls under it, the pots, shovels, and sprinkling bowls. All these objects that Hiram made for King Solomon for the temple of the Lord were of burnished bronze." The king had them cast in clay molds in the plan of the Jordan between Succoth and Zarathon. Solomon left all these things unweighed because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Solomon also made all the furnishings that were in the Lord's temple. The golden altar, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, the gold floral work and lamps and tongs, the pure gold basins wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, dishes, and censers, and the gold sockets for the doors of the innermost room, the most holy place, and also for the doors of the main hall of the temple. When all the work King Solomon had done for the temple of the Lord was finished, he brought in the things his father David had dedicated the silver and gold, and the furnishings, and he placed them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. That's quite a chapter, isn't it? <laughs> Your homework for next week is to memorize that chapter, okay? And if anybody memorizes it, we're going to take up a collection and send you on a free vacation. <laughs> Don't hold me to that. But anyway, it's not the typical Bible reading. You probably turn to the most, right? But again, it's part of the word of the Lord. It's just as inspired as John 3.16. But what did you pick up on? Did you pick up on the detail given? The intricate detail and the costliness of this uh, project. You know, 2 Chronicles 4.1 tells us about the bronze altar for burnt offerings at the entrance and Outer quarter of the temple. And, and, and we're reminded by the, by the altar that approach to God is only on the basis of what? Sacrifice for sin. Approach to God is only possible because of sacrifice for sin. In the Old Covenant, these type sacrifices. In the New Covenant, Jesus We don't approach God on our own merits. I don't care how good you might think that you are. I don't care how many good works you think you've done or how many laws you've kept. You know, I don't smoke and I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. You know, that type of thing. I don't care how much you do that. You can't approach God on that basis. We see in verses 23 to 26, the basin, this was a basin of water, the sea, holding 11,500 gallons of water supported by statues of 12 oxen, possibly signifying one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, two things are probably symbolized by this huge basin of water. First, The size of the basin may signify how God created the earth out of water and he he brought water. Uh, This large containment of water would point to God's creative power and God being sovereign over all creation. And secondly, it would signify the need of cleansing. As the priest carried out their work, Remember, they had to continually go over to the basin and and wash. And then you come to the New Testament, and it talks about the washing of water by the word. It's a reminder to us that as we minister before the Lord, we've got to continually be washed by the word. We don't carry out our ministry in our own wisdom, our own strength, our own abilities. We've got to constantly be anchored here. Right here. And then the Holy of Holies, it was the the most ornate and beautiful portion of the whole temple. There was gold everywhere. And what did the Holy of Holies symbolize? God's presence. It should be an illustration to us of the wonder and the beauty of God's presence. Now, it's difficult to know exactly how much this building would have cost. I told you last week, uh, one writer has estimated we're, we're over $100 billion if you were to bring everything into today's monetary figures Uh, he didn't explain in detail how he arrived at that but yet think about it all of this beauty was destroyed and the wealth was confiscated by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians when they captured Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and you want to know the irony in it all how ironic and prophetic it is to realize that Solomon, Solomon, the man who ordered the building of the temple, gave such devotion and attention to everything, was also the same king who married a multitude of foreign wives who took his heart away from God And idolatry, false gods and false altars became proliferated all over the landscape. And what did that bring? That brought judgment of the Lord and the destruction of this temple. The very man, the very king, who's having all this built and had been warned against idolatry and the dangers of it and the curse it would bring on him. He's the one who married all these wives, who took his heart away from the Lord, and he served false gods in the I think if only Solomon could have looked ahead and seen his weak finish. Strong start, but a weak finish. Now, some commentators go back to the very beginning of chapter 7. Look back to the first 12 verses of chapter 7. And they point out that here we already are beginning to see hints of a problem. And what's the hint of a problem that we see here? You are they built an even bigger palace. His own house. About twice as big and took about twice as long. So a divided heart. And this may be why comments of his palace are stuck right in the middle. Chapter 6 is the construction of the temple. The second half of chapter 7 about. The detail of the furnishings of the temple, tucked away right in between the two end caps, is instruct or or verses about his own palace, probably indicating this very thing that right in the middle of all that, you know, he's doing this, but here's his palace. Here's how big it was, and how much it cost. And so we're we're being given a little hint at Solomon's divided heart and his misplaced priorities. It's like a little warning, warning signal right here. Notice the apartment that was built for the queen of Egypt. Yes. Out of captivity crime? Yes, yes. And she's the only one that a special section was built for her, probably <laughs> indicating in the alliance with Egypt. The Egyptian kings, as I pointed out last week, didn't normally give their daughters away to farmers in marriage. Probably indicating she was his first and main wife. She has her own special area. She was more, most prominent of all his wives. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me give you some lessons I, I have on your study guide there. God's work should flow from a devoted heart. God's work should flow from a devoted heart. No doubt about it, as Solomon begins this work, it was a passion of his. It was a passion. He wasn't just going through the motions. He wasn't simply carrying out a duty or a job. He cared. And that's apparent through the expense, the time, the attention that he gave to the building of the temple. And so we dare not just, you know, go through the motions. What we do for the Lord, we need to do out of a committed, passionate heart. The second lesson, God deserves our best. But a third lesson, while God deserves our best, we should never be led to believe that God will bless us simply because we give him sacrificial gifts or service. We've got to prioritize obedience. And then lastly, we see the human heart must be guarded. It's easy to drift to our own projects and end up putting more into those than we put into God's work. So just some takeaways for you there. Okay, as I wrap up, did did anything in particular stand out to you? Mm Mm-hmm. It looks like after he finished his first house, there was another house in the forest. And where's the deal? Right. Uh, uh, no, I think that's just indicating the description of his place. The same house? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh. The description of the palace. And now that you said that you thought you should have looked forward, but I think it's too. Perhaps he should have looked back also to when his first beginning walked with the Lord and the Lord spoke with him. I mean How many people get that opportunity? More than that. It's unbelievable that he can experience what he experienced and still go the way he went. I, I exactly. Know, you know, despite Solomon's failings, though, we, we see in him uh, to Rick's point, what we so oftentimes see in the Bible. We think back to these saints in the Bible. And we might think you know, they were perfect. Boy, they were men and women with feet of clay. And when and where God used them, He used them in spite of themselves. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? He uses us in spite of us. In spite of our shortcomings. <clears throat> yes. A lot of, uh, a lot of times, you'd be working with a guy, and the guy would say, oh, that's good enough for government work." <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, the Bible says that you're supposed to uh, do everything and uh, what, it, what your hand finds to do, do as unto the Lord. Yeah. And so even though you might not like the boss or of job or whatever, you gotta, you, know, you wanna do what God says. press obedience, you know. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I was gonna ask you about the Wailing Wall. Was mm-hmm. that part of the Solomon's Temple? No. Well, that is, that is, well, part of Herod's Temple. Remember, in the exile, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed the temple. Right. Then after they came back from exile under Ezra and Nehemiah and so forth, they built the second temple. Oh, it's not this one. Mm -hmm. And then you come down to 37 B.C. and all through the birth of Christ uh, for about 39, 40 years, maybe 37 years anyway, Herod. uh, The Herod that was in charge when Jesus was born and was seeking to take his life. He went through a lavish expansion of the temple, the second temple, to kind of try to appease the Jews and look better in their sight, and uh, you know he made it a much bigger and ornate place, and all of this right here. And then, of course, in 70 A.D., when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, the Wailing Wall is part of the wall that's still left. Yeah. And it's amazing to go underground when you're uh, going underground along, along that area. And you're in this little tunnel where it's just you and a lane coming at you, and you. almost Both lanes almost have to walk sideways and it's full of people under there. But the single blocks, the single stones in that wall. I mean, if you were to, I bet if you were to take this whole entire side wall, you know, pretend like the windows aren't there. That whole entire side wall, and that might be like one stone. I mean, some of them just absolutely huge in size. Huge. And you wonder how do how did they do all that? You can Google that on the internet and like one stone I read was thirty two feet. Yeah. yeah. One stone. One stone. Thirty-two yeah. Massive stones that have been, you know, hewn or cut square and laid on top of one another and so forth. And they did that away. Yeah. <laughs> and then got it there. And it did. Yep. yep. But yep. one thing I thought of when I was studying this, over and over, you read the detail. You read costly stones, costly stones. Right. And it just hit me. We're building temples. We're the temples in the. Temples. We're the temple. Yeah. Are we putting costly stones? Yeah. Or just giving God the leftovers? Yep and are painting ourselves with gold or with wood You stubble. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of hit me when I was yeah. reading this. Uh-huh. Why was the temple made so large or huge? What was your... Well, actually, again, by today's standards, it's not that big of a building. Most of our churches today would be much bigger buildings. <clears throat> bigger, than, bigger than the tabernacle, the, you know, the tent of meeting that they carry around in the wilderness with them. But you know, a building 90 feet long and what 30, 30 feet wide, 45 feet tall, Not that big of a building by today's standards, actually. But the, the temple was just sacrifices? The what? For sacrifices, right? The temple was built for sacrifices or for worship? Well, you had your outer courts, and then in, right before you went inside, you know, there, was, there was the altar where the sacrifices were in the basin, and then an area the priests could go into, and then the Holy of Holies that only the, uh, the high priest could go into once a year. But they would go there, they would sing psalms as they were going to the temple and getting there and offering their sacrifice. So there it, it was worship and praise and prayer and sacrifice. It was about the a representation of what Moses built in the desert? Yes. Mm-hmm. Just more permanent, whereas that was a, a tent. Mm hmm. Okay. Are cherubim and seraphim the same as angels? They seem to be a classification of angels. I've heard some people say angels are different and they don't have names. Some with and some without. Yeah. 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 But they seem to be a, a classification of angels. And you know the seraphim, we see those in Isaiah chapter six around the altar. Uh, saying, holy, holy, holy. So the cherubim and seraphim, apparently a very high order of angels that actually minister in the presence of God. The number of wings come to play too, like seraphim, six wings? Six wings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was in Ezekiel, two wings to like cover the face, two wings, mid part, two wings. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Different classifications of angels. You have like Michael and David, archangels. <coughs> <Orthodox. laughs>